Greetings to Mr. and Mrs. Middle America and all the ships at sea. <laughs> this is Ian Punnett on Coast to Coast AM. And to the hostile invading alien armies hovering silently behind their cloaking devices just outside of Earth's atmosphere, remember, eat the Canadians first. They're much tastier, you know. They love to brag about that health care, so. Buffet is open. <laughs> uh, okay. I love great stories on coasttocoastam.com. Some exceptionally good stories. Um, I like the daylight UFO sighting in, in Indiana, and I'll follow that up with the search for D.B. Cooper's parachute yields, this intriguing white sheet. Now, a lot of things about the D.B. Cooper story, as you've been following on Coast to Coast now for decades— they're all intriguing, right? I mean, they're all fun. They're all interesting. Some are more interesting than others, however, and they play out differently. Sometimes it's a slow build to nothing there, to maybe there's something there. I, I, I like in this look at the sheet that they found in the general area of where the parachute was supposed to be, but... Uh, to like the the way that people have been treating the shroud of Turin all these years, it's like going over inch by inch, looking for these smallest of clues. Uh, it's a great story. Go take a look. Last night we had fun. Um, it was a Friday night. We did some great open line calls. I followed up on a couple of things afterward, like you all asked me to. Always interesting to see what you all are up to. Reptoids and underground bases. That was the. That was the premise. John Rhodes was on, and I don't know. You know, I, I told him in advance. I, I'm just, that's just a bridge too far for me. I can't do it. I can't do the whole underground base, sophisticated alien, you know, culture that pops up as reptoids and they, some reports of them living amongst us and working in U.S. bases. I, I just don't buy it. But it was a fun thing to explore, and if you missed it, you can do that using your Coast Insider at coasttocoastam.com. He makes his best case last night for um, the reptoid humanoids and those secret underworld empires. If anybody knows of doors that go down mysteriously into an underworld, it would certainly be our main guest this hour, and that would be RYP baby, Robert Young Pelton. Uh, we'll talk to him coming up in just a second. And then uh, after that, we'll talk about Holy Food. This is a great book, and it's all about cults and religions and how food and drink have impacted those over the years in ways that you would never have expected. The, the changes in our diet, the things that we take for granted. Somehow we think, well, this is normal. And to actually read the real story of why it is that we do that or eat that. We'll get to that coming up later on tonight. But first, uh, uh, come back alive. That's we're always glad when Robert Young Pelton will come back alive and be on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Uh, I don't know if... You remember this, Robert, but the very first time that you were on Coast to Coast, you were on with me. Tell me. Seriously. This is back when I was kind of a crash test dummy for Art Bell. And if 
Seriously. And if the content didn't work with me, then they wouldn't give it to Art. But if they gave me somebody who ordinarily wasn't like, you know, between the curbs for Art and we could make a show out of it, then they would kind of throw you into the into the main cast. And I loved having you on. I think it was it was after um it was after World's Most Dangerous Places. I remember that. It might have been for Come Back Alive. Uh or or the I can there was another book you had like Hunter Hammer in Heaven or something. I did a book on mercenaries and contractors called yeah. to Kill. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were talking and I just I just I thought you were the best. I still do. I mean, people well, ask you know, me. I, I'm going to tell you something. I, you know, I've done everything from Oprah to Conan to whatever. And I remember after 9-11 happened. Yes. Uh, I did Coast to Coast. And it me. basically crashed my website. It put me in the top 10 websites on Earth. It sold forests of books. Right. It was the single most profound event in terms of just getting the word out because I was the only guy that could explain the Taliban and Afghanistan exactly. and you know, what was going on. So there's, there's a huge, you know, sort of quiet right. audience that um, I guess half of them like to fall asleep to the show. But it's, <laughs> you know, when you oh, connect, no. It's very powerful. Well, first of all, you're welcome. Second of all, <laughs> um, Back then, it was, yeah, they, you know, a lot of people were buying the tapes, and your tape was really popular. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it's just wonderful to have you back on again. Um, and, and thank you for making yourself available. I, I will, let me, if I find out that Robert Young Pelton secretly works some cubicle job in an insurance office in New Jersey, my world crashes. <laughs> I win. <laughs> Dead no, serious. I still go to war zones. I was on the front lines in Ukraine for a month. I was in Chad in the northern desert. I mean, I end up in places where people sort of say, why did you go there? And it's like, because right. that's where the action is. That's where exactly. things are going to happen. So that's my job. I told uh, I told Lisa, the executive producer of Coast to Coast, I told her if I had a, a, if I had a life to live over that I could just be like splinter off like, you know, multiplicity or something like that. I would have one that was just followed in your footsteps, especially when you were talking about the Taliban, you know, that you were sitting down with these. I don't know. They, I can't remember whether they were the mullahs or whatever. And you're like yeah. breaking bread in the middle of nowhere, and you're getting to know them. You're hearing their story. You weren't taking their side, but no. you you heard what they had to say, and you were able to speak eloquently about these conflict spaces, these these contested right. spaces on the planet, with with the objectivity in a way of a journalist. But more than that, you you're you you do what journalism really perhaps should do all the time, which is take a long time in getting to know the truth of a story. Well, you know, I've had people from 60 Minutes come up to me and say they wish they were me because most people don't realize that journalists are restricted by what editors want, you know, budgets, what's hot, what's not hot. Sure. And I like to be out in the wars that aren't really in the news yet, you know, trying to understand these smaller conflicts that usually blow up. 
And, uh, you know, for example, Afghanistan, I went there knowing something was going to happen, and I was on the ground, uh, you know, which is now famous with the horse soldiers, you know, the special right. forces team that was right. running around there. And it's just another trip for me, you know. It's, it's um, Another day so at the office. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I work as a journalist, but I, I really like to do my own documentaries, and I like right. to go to places where they would just have a heart attack if I told them I was going there. So, you know, yeah. if you ever watch what I did for Vice, you know, I, I, it's called Saving South Sudan. If you go I, did. I did. I did. They tried to copy me when they first did their sort of TV series. And, and I said, well, look, why don't you guys let me show you how it's done? So in about six weeks, I wrote the entire magazine and shot a documentary which then hunted down a warlord that was hiding in the bush and, and filmed this horrific battle which had never been filmed before came back wrote it up and said here you go and they were like whoa so right <laughs> i do like to brag a bit sometimes about what well hey you know what but in this business if you don't it's it's easy to get lost in the you know, in all the wannabes. And so every so once in a while, you got to step up and you got to show them how it's really done, you know. Yeah. And who can blame you if you have a hold here, hold my purse moment and you showed, you know, <laughs> these people how to do it. And I and I have the utmost respect for many of the pieces I've seen on, on Vice. I think um, they try to do it right or did. Anyway, I don't I'm, I don't are they off the air right now or they were being bounced around a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah. they still they still do great stuff. Look, I mean, I, I don't diss journalism or vice or these groups that do great stuff. It's just that the reality of budgets, timing and, you know, I sure. spend a lot of time by myself with rebel and terrorist groups. And I'm sitting there listening to them drone on and on and trying not to get killed. You know, when I was in Ukraine, I almost got killed by an S-300 missile that just narrowly missed the hotel and blew out one side. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are built into the job that don't make it into the stories. But hopefully if you get what happens and what people think and why this war is happening across to people, they get it. They get it. Yeah. Well, that's really why we wanted you on for this first hour, and thank you for giving it to us because and you can link up to you can link up to Robert through comebackalive.com or you can go through our website which we've got a hot link there but your you have been in the places on frequently on both sides of the lines and you have an understanding of the people and the pressures and the day to day of it that maybe some other journalists or writers who parachute in do a story and then get evac'd out, um, you know, they, they don't quite get it. They'll, they may get the data right. They may get some facts right. But you're telling a longer form story. So t- talk to us about Ukraine and what your experience was like there. How many times, first of all, have you been? I went there once for a long time. and I'll go back. I really enjoyed, I shouldn't say I enjoyed that war, but I, I really got what's going on there. In other words, this is a group of people who are being brutalized by Russia, and there's no plan B, right? It's either fight these people right. off or lose your country. So the the Ukrainians are very, very bright, industrious people. Uh, you know, most of the military used to do something else, like accountants, bricklayers, or whatever. Uh, they're all making great sacrifices to be out there on the front lines. And it's the dirtiest kind of war you can imagine. I mean, when I say dirt, I mean mud, you know, trenches, right. popping your head up, shooting another person. He tries to kill you. You throw a grenade. I mean, it's just horrific. And, you know, through that, we see 
the, the future peril of a country like Russia or China testing us. And, you know, that is the front line of World War III. So, you know, I got to see how they fight, how they use tech, and it's very creative how they're fighting off the Russians. And I saw the sadness of the Russians just throwing bodies at bullets. I mean, just wasting, wasting thousands of lives and using crappy, you know, badly made equipment and watching right. people burn alive. So it's it's a terrible war, but it's it's the war we have to fight. Um, it, you mentioned the crappy equipment. I think this is something which, uh, and I'm, you know, hardly an expert, but I, 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 I watch and I read a lot about World War II, and that it's the tech sometimes that makes the pivotal difference. Um, you know, Japanese rifles were notoriously prone to jamming. Um, there were some good ones, but a lot of the ones they issued were better than, slightly better than broomsticks. And then um, the same thing true with like Lugers and other things. There was a lot t- toward the end of the con. May, what they may have started out being made really well, but they had to manufacture them so fast, and they had numbers they had to meet. And it ends up that 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 factor, the tech factor, may have been some the most pivotal piece of some of those hand-to-hand battles. Well, let's take it one step further. So I'm with a unit that uses consumer drones made by DGI, you know, the kind that you fly around to take pictures. Right. And they were using plastic printers uh, to create little uh, mechanisms that would then drop uh, grenades. And these grenades were not necessarily meant to be dropped from the air, but the Russians had never thought of their tanks being attacked from the top. You know, they always assumed that somebody's shooting at them from the front. And it's very hot and noisy and miserable in a tank, so they drive with the turrets open. These grenades, particularly thermal grenades, drop through the hatch, ignite the diesel fuel that's in the tanks, and oh, then gosh. all the shells that are in a ring sitting under yeah. the core operator detonate and just create this horrific explosion. So you did this all with a, with a you know $1,200 drone and a, maybe a $200 uh, modification of grenades. So this is the kind of tech. The other thing is they use the internet very interesting. They use Skype, not Skype, uh, Signal, and they have like pickup football games where they see the enemy, they call out where it is, people say, I'm here, I'm going over there, I'll do this, and they, they create little small units to go after the Russians. Uh, the Russians have none of that technology. I mean, they're, they're trying to adapt it very quickly, but Ukrainians are very fast and light and, and hit pretty hard and then disappear. So it's hard for the Russians to fight that. You've written a book um, about mercenaries, um, and the the Wagner Group obviously was the one that got most of the attention, um, right. and and a lot of people thought, oh well, they're in it now, so you know, game over. Um, but it wasn't. Why? Why did that fail? Well, you know, the funny thing is the Wagner Group wanted me to do a documentary, so they reached out to me and they wanted, they insisted that I go to all the places they have soldiers, you know, mercenaries like Venezuela, right. DRC and whatever. And I just got a really bad feeling about Wagner because Wagner is actually the GRU, the Russian Intelligence Service, okay. and the money comes from Moscow. And it's the, the funny thing is that, that these mercenary groups are actually illegal in Russia. So Wagner pretends like it's working offshore. Uh, and what they're able to do is hire soldiers for more money than the Russian army pays them. And they're able to do more things quicker than the Russian military, which is basically a giant mafia operation. And that's what led to the demise of Wagner when Pejogin was so upset that he couldn't get shells, he couldn't get equipment, and it was being sort of held back. 
he was essentially competing with the Russian military. And you remember Bakhmut, the big city that everybody fought over. The idea that it was taken by mercenaries was deeply embarrassing to the Russian army, which considers themselves sort of World War II, II era, you know, heroes. Right. So when he revolted against Putin, it was exactly why these groups are illegal in Russia. So it came full circle. It's a very interesting story. Uh, how many Ukrainian cities near the border, or you know, how many? Where have you been? Oh well, I went to all the front lines. I was with a group called White Stork, and and they deliver first aid kits to the soldiers on the front lines. So we started in Odessa and did a big circle all the way around and um, went to all the, the fighting positions. I mean, not all of them, but I mean, all the main spots and all the main towns. Went right. to some newly liberated towns, uh, got to meet a lot of people who were involved in some of this tech. So we, we, I mean, I had a fantastic exposure because it's not often I get to go to every frontline position. Uh, and that was, they gave you that access why? why? Why wouldn't you have well, been considered? Okay, so, so here's the funny thing. So the reason why they, the Ukrainians, want us to deliver these first aid kits directly to the soldiers on the front lines, is that's where they want them. They want them with the soldiers that might get wounded, right? And this is a, a terrible war with a lot of you know shrapnel wounds where people bleed. So the kit has the proper tourniquets. It's got the proper you know ventilators, things like that. And they don't want somebody keeping it in a warehouse and then reselling these things or causing some kind of scandal. So we literally photograph ourselves putting this first aid kit in the hand of soldiers on the front lines in the trenches. So it's, it's a very cool concept, but that's how the Ukrainians think. They're very light and, and uh, innovative. Yeah, and yet, like a lot of places um, – Kiev. I, I mean, how do you pronounce it, by the way? Because I keep hearing Kiev or Kiev is Kiev. the proper. I mean, if you're a tourist, you call it whatever you want. It's a nice town. Right. Kiev, Kiev, you know, whatever. Kiev, Kiev is how I pronounce it. Yeah, that's how I thought. Um, and and I, I, But the people who I know who are from that area, who either live in the United States, had lived in the United States and went back there, um, they're, 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 they were funny. They were really vivacious. They kind of remind you a lot of people that you'd kind of meet in Silicon Valley. Not to say that they're all like that, but there was, there was a level of, of, um, almost a national pride in the, in how, and on, on, in, and having a culture of its own while at the right. same time, you know, Putin is telling the Russians that this is, you know, these are our, these are just like us. They really are us. And the Ukrainians are going, no, we're not. <laughs> and they're, they find it very funny that they keep being sort of appropriated. Well, okay, so the couple of things that you should know. One is that uh, Ukraine was actually where most of the aerospace brains were, you know, uh-huh. and all these you know, breakthroughs. Secondly, it's also a money laundering operation for the Russians when they sell oil and gas to Europe, because that's how they generate revenues for the oligarchs. So as a pipeline goes through a country, you're you're siphoning off a guaranteed profit, and then you have to use that to do whatever Putin wants you to. So he he wants Ukraine, obviously, because it's part of his idea of what the Russian Empire should be. But the Ukrainians have a very strong sense of self and nation national pride. Now, there are people who are Russians, Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, right, just like any border town or whatever. And that's always been contentious with the old Russian empire falling apart. But Ukraine is Ukraine. There's no confusion. Yeah. Uh, Well, except, 
you know, in certain places in Moscow, we're trying to make that, you know, push that obscurity. Uh, all right. So, uh, again, uh, this is super helpful, at least for me. I really like to know more about this. Um, filmmaker, journalist, adventurer, Robert Young Pelton, uh, who's been on Coast to Coast now for decades, will tell us. I'm going to ask. I don't know what he can tell us. I want to ask more about the Middle East. He's been in all those countries, too. So about the people, about the pressures, what's going on, we'll find out next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Uh Robert, I should mention, I have a friend in uh, Ukraine uh, named Nadia Vasina. She has popped on a couple of times. And she was, you know, kind of a, a mid-level, maybe higher uh, media star in Ukraine, she, but but on kind of like MTV, you know, she she was kind of a fun person who she'd won beauty pageants and she was a gymnast and spent a lot of time in Chicago. Her English was pretty good, and so I, I, she would send me these photos, and she was doing what you were doing about following up and going to the front lines and bringing supplies. And I at, at one point I was given. I was speaking on a board or something like that, and they they wanted to give me five hundred dollars. I said I don't need it, so give it to her, and I signed it over to her. and And uh, and that little bit went a long way to buy bandages and other stuff. But I remember the it, she, I was trying to see the last photo she sent me, which was uh, I mean she looked like Rick Moranis in Spaceballs with this helmet, you know, she's just this <laughs> giant helmet on her. Uh, but. I, this, that was my impression. It was like everybody was pitching in, and people that had no business doing that, you know. And, and as soon as the bombs dropped in Kiev, and part of the building next to her got hit, she was out there taking video and sending it to me the next day. And it's very interesting. So, I, what's that like? Is there is it the same thing that in your experience for the countries you've been in in the Middle East? Uh, no. Well, first of all, Ukraine is a massively huge place, right? Right. So it, it, when you see the bombs exploding and the artillery, yes, they happen in uh, certain places, but it's a very, very large country, and life goes on. You know, if you go to the main cities, the restaurants are open, you can have a coffee, right. the hotels are open. So uh, the Ukrainians don't pretend like it's the end of the world. They're They're getting on with their lives. The Middle East is a different story, and, and you know, when we say Middle East, we, we have a... True. You could spend... 20 years doing right. history stories about right. why this guy doesn't like that guy and who took right. over this place and et cetera, et cetera. But what's, what's critical about the Middle East is the connection to the U.S. We, we, we have two things about the, the current conflict between um, Palestinians and Israelis is that it affects the global market. You know, you, you have the Arab nations, which many of them are, are petro dictatorships, pushing back, and they're going to jack up uh, fuel prices, you know, if, if, if they don't see things happening their way. Uh, we have a huge uh, group of people in the states that are split. You know, typically older Republicans support Israel and younger sort of left-wing Democrats uh, support Gaza. And, and you have this dynamic that's so got nothing to do with what's happening in the states. It's happening, you know, thousands of miles away. So that's what makes the Middle East so interesting is that it echoes around the world. But tell me, like, then to your point about the landmass, these are fairly compacted countries. They're not, I mean, Ukraine is mostly like, right, wheat fields and farms and whatever. Right. But 
this is um, this is different, and so everybody's kind of on top of each other, and that that rarely works out well. Well, okay, so so Ukraine doesn't do a lot of lobbying. You know, when when something happens, uh, Israel has a very sophisticated PR arm that immediately launches things into social media. And then uh, Gaza will launch thousands of pictures of dead children and explosions and screaming people. So we see it in our living rooms. We see it on our phones. It's, when you look at Ukraine, it looks a little bit more professional. You see people in you know tanks and planes right. and helicopters and whatever. It doesn't have the same sense of horror that the war in the Middle East does. So it, it's a lot more impactful emotionally. And also, uh, because it's cyclical, it's also very depressing. You know, because we kind of know that it'll calm down and happen again, calm down, happen again, as it has for many years. So it, it, trauma- it traumatizes us. Uh, the, this one seemed spontaneous or, I mean, it, it wasn't, there doesn't seem to be a cause that I'm, I can find, a trigger for why Hamas did that when they did it, where they did it, and to the gr- the degree that they did it. I, you know, I I think we're used to them throwing missiles at each other or whatever, but this wasn't that. Well, let me let me tell you something. First of all, you got to go to Gaza to understand that the, this this is a terrible place to live in. I mean, it's it's not <laughs> some place you would choose uh, to be in. It's, everything's compressed. Everything is you can't get out. I mean, it's just it's a terrible place to live. Secondly, I told you about the cyclical nature of this. When they had the Abraham Accords, they literally ignored the Palestinians. You know, that was supposed to be a peace deal. It didn't shape Palestine or new country or anything. Nothing happened. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter who you blame, but the point is that we've had a series of peace deals and then failures and then flare-ups. So it's expected. I mean, if, if you put people under pressure for that long and you have that many young people that are unemployed and you have people stirring them up with rhetoric, they're going to do something. The, the thing that was shocking was the, was the intelligence failure and the number of casualties caused by uh, Hamas, who then broke out into the southern part of Israel. And I think Israel's still traumatized by that. Yeah, I, I think I keep coming back to that rock concert, that peace concert. Sort of a little mini Woodstock or something, or a Burning Man. It was, it was and, a rave, yeah, it was a rave. Yeah, but that raid on that group, that there was a, a brutality to that. That it, 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 yeah, but that 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 seemed pretty. And then all of the people and the families, and I know that that goes both ways. But there was something about it was very personal. It seemed like on the. Let's zoom back because okay. 9-11 was about as brutal as you can get, you know, right. the slaughter of 3,000 people. Right. Um, and, and to be very cold and clinical, if, if someone is killed by having their head cut off or shrapnel cuts their head off when a bomb is dropped on them, you know, it, it, is that the same? In other words, is terrorism created at different levels? And all I can see is that we – get dragged into these things as having to choose a side or to, and I can say you can condemn both sides. You can support both sides. You can ignore both sides because what Hamas did was a deliberate terrorist attack to get attention and to create that same cycle of violence and then peace talks and then money flows and they steal the money and then they settle down and then they stir, you know, stir it up again. 
And, and if you look at your history, it's just like this constant cycle of violence and, and negotiation and violence, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible situation. It's not going to end anytime soon. As you look at the map, as you know, going back to dangerous places, mm-hmm. what's the next big place that you're worried about? Having traveled, well, I'm globe. worried about the UAE, which is Abu Dhabi, a very small little uh, oil-rich country, has a very methodical plan of slicing up African countries. And you know, they they started with Yemen, they they went on to Libya. They're operational in Sudan by supporting uh, the you used to call them the Janjaweed in the south, splitting that country in half. They're active in Ethiopia, Eritrea. And essentially, they're they're trying to create chaotic situations that favor their sort of peace and stability. And it even reaches out to this country. You know, we're a very divided nation, and we must ask ourselves, why are we so eager to argue with somebody who doesn't believe in what we believe in? And this is the trend we have to watch out for, is, is the deliberate manipulation of ideas, opinions, you know, sort of into right or wrong, left or right. And this is something that is fairly new. You know, it happened in the last 15, 20 years. And also social media has exacerbated it. Yeah, I think so. We are being manipulated to be weaker, to be divisive, as opposed to being unified. And, And this is the danger that I see. And this is, you know, I'm working on a new edition of Dangerous Places. And I don't think people realize how often during the day they're assaulted by ideas, images, things designed specifically to manipulate them. It's very interesting because I, I don't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of the UAE of all the places you would have mentioned, because they've got it, you know, pretty good. I mean, the the people that live in the UAE live very well. Um, I know there's a citizenship thing where you have to have a a job in the Emirates in order to be able to to stay, and as soon as you don't, you got to go, and all the, you know, there's, there's, citizenship has, uh, obviously, is done in tiers and all of that, but at the same time, why, why are they rocking the boat? What, well, what's in it for them? Let's be fair. Everybody does this. You know, we do it. Russia does it. China does it. Everybody jumps in there and tries to manipulate people, but this particular organization, which, you know, it's, it's a family, the Bonnie Fatima, six brothers, one died. Um, is terrified. Remember Arab Spring? These guys were one demonstration away from being kicked out of their own country. So a lot of these, including Saudi Arabia, has has sort of said, okay, we have to be proactive. We have to go get people that don't like uh, dictatorships. And and they call it the Muslim Brotherhood, which is essentially politicized Islam. In other words, the, the Muslim Brotherhood doesn't believe that one family should rule a nation, just like we didn't think that city states and royalty should run countries. And Bear Spring scared the hell out of these people. So they, they came up with this, you know, a plan to basically destabilize and control potential threats. But so the, this is all about then going on offense as a good defense. Yeah. Well, here's, here's something for you. Putin spends almost $500 million a day to prosecute the war against Ukraine. That's now, insane. If you could elect someone that would right. simply stop funding Ukraine, what's it worth to you? Right. Exactly. Pennies on the dollar, right? Right. If, if someone is angry at Saudi Arabia because of their human rights violations and their sort of archaic view of things, what does it cost to change the government in this country or Europe 
to find someone who who says, oh, that's okay with me. You know, we're, we're friends now. So th- there's a huge danger in this soft, corrosive invasion into countries that are sort of, you know, moralistic and high and mighty by groups that have a lot more money and a lot more time on their hands to degrade what we call the, you know, the the liberal democracy theory that we created after World War II. Right. You know, uh, when you're traveling in these countries, and by the way, I really like your website photo. Um, a lot of people, they make they make their own website, and they pick the weirdest photos of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> like, but you look, you, like, you look like the guy who would be making a film. Who are the soldiers who were behind you on the boat, top of the oh, fold on your we website? We have to get up to a... This- we were tipped off that there's going to be an attack by Riak Mashar, who was the vice president hiding in the bush. And we had to get up the river to get to this battle. And they, you know, they send soldiers with you because people will rob you or whatever, but it's really just an employment scheme. Right. So I said, yeah, come on, let's, I'll get some right. guys. If you watch Saving South Sudan, you know, the whole, I could explain the whole story there, but, um, the funny thing is, is that I, I rarely take pictures of myself, you know, and so that, that right. was taken by Tim Frescia, who was the photographer I had with me. But some of them are rather incongruous because why is this guy in a boat and you know, who are these people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a collection of a few crazy photos. But, but that's about, not crazy. You know, that, that, semiotically, as we would say, that's a great photo. It, it tells a story. I don't I don't know what the story is about what's going on behind you. What's that? That somebody's going to get into trouble. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it looks like. But the funny thing, I mean, it's perfect. You know, you've got your your eye line is drawn to the center, which actually draws you right to your mustache. And then you you go and you look at the faces of the guys behind you and they're perfect, like they were posing for this. Um, And you look pensive and you look like a guy who's, who's on a mission. And that's kind of the whole story then I think of your, of your website. Yeah. And I, well, that, that's the cruel affliction of resting bitch face. You know, it's something <laughs> I, was born with, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the thing the, the premise was I was bringing back a child soldier to fix South Sudan. And, and what he didn't tell me is that Rick Bashar, the warlord that we were hunting down in the bush had actually killed his father. Oh no. And, it was a very, for him, it was a very traumatic experience to see all these people chopped up and burned and raped with spears. And it was just sure. a terrible event. But he he was just happy to get back to managing a Costco. Yeah, I bet. Robert, how, how have you survived? Oh, Why are you, you still here? <laughs> so I'm either like Mr. Magoo. You know, have you ever watched the old Mr. Magoo? Sure, I remember. Oh, my God. Right. Or, or people, my theory is that people want to get me to where I'm going, and they want to get me back alive so I can tell the story. And, and I have been in some horrendous situations. You know, I've been kidnapped and marched to gunpoint to the jungles of Colombia. I've been, you know, hit with shells and whatever, plane crashes. I truly believe that if you develop a relationship with people, they'll do their best to, to get you somewhere. They'll say, don't go there. Or go there, uh, you know. For example, I was hounding a, a, a mullah who's a friend of Mullah Omar's and a friend of Bin Laden's, and we we're in the coast, the border area of Afghanistan. And I kept bugging him that I wanted to interview this guy who had shelled his convoy and tried to kill him. And he said, "Okay, I'll set it up." So he sets it up, and then at the last minute, he calls me. He says, I can't do it. I can't do it. He said, he, 
he paid me money so he could kidnap you because his son was arrested the day before and he wants to trade you, so I can't do it. So just stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And I, again, you know, I don't know why I'm alive. I, I never imagined I would live past, you know, 35 or 40, but <laughs> here I am. Yeah. Uh, and you are legitimately the sole survivor of a lot of historical events, or at least the last eyewitness to well, important things. I, I go to terrible places, you know, where terrible yeah. things happen. And, you know, for example, I was in Grozny, and uh, they said, you got to leave. The Russians are surrounding us. And, and if you get caught, tell them we kidnapped you, because that's the only way you're going to survive. And all those people that I was with are dead. We're all murdered in prison or killed in combat or stepped on landmines or whatever. And, you know, it makes me think how important it is to sort of carry these stories forward, take pictures, videos, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you rely on gifts? It's, it's sort of a cinematic motif, but, I mean, do you, do you have to always bring something to somebody? In which case, how do you afford that? Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm not carrying around chandeliers and right. whiskey bottles, you know, right. whatever is appropriate. Um, one of my favorite gifts is the Mr. DP sticker, which I give out to child soldiers originally, uh, but it's very popular on the front lines. And you know, if, if, if somebody sees one of my knives that I make, you know, I make these DPX gear knives. I, I bring knives to give to soldiers because that's a very practical gift. I found out in Ukraine, by the way, that it's bad luck to give something metal and sharp to someone unless they give you something back. So I actually got a couple of really cool knives uh, because of that. But I, I do my best with, with the limited space and equipment I have. And plus, don't forget, you know, I have to take pictures of people and give them to them. So right. one of the things that people forget is you're, you're taking things from these people, right? So now with cell phones and things like that, I'll take a bunch of pictures and I'll you know, send them via email or text or whatever. And they're, and they're thrilled. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? But people are, in a lot of ways, just people everywhere. And well, they just like, hey, look, there, there I am. Well, think of it this way. Nobody takes a picture of you when you're working. Like, I go to a Waffle House. I make a big <laughs> deal out of taking everybody's pictures. And they're just thrilled. They're just thrilled. Uh, I love that. Well, Robert Young Pelton's website is comebackalive.com. You can link up directly to it through the Coast to Coast dot com website um you've been on the show for years what do you learn when you come back to the united states um just or canada for that matter i'm sorry what's that people people are hungry for information from various sources and they do care americans do care a lot about what goes on in the world and uh it's always refreshing to hear somebody who lives in a farm in the middle of nowhere say, well, thank you for explaining what's going on there because, you know, I trust you and, and I care about it because I see it on my TV, but I don't right. understand it. Right. Uh, get that. Uh, so I'm booking you then for your uh, redux of Dangerous Places coming up, okay? Just, uh, just tell the world to go on pause for five years, okay? Just tell them to hold still for <laughs> <laughs> sounds great to me and uh right. so we'll we'll have our 25th anniversary together or something like right. that on coast to coast uh robert Thank young you. pelton it's always a pleasure uh holy food uh we've been talking about this for a week how cults uh communes and religious movements influenced what we eat 
it's endlessly fascinating and probably crisscrosses some of what 